as the kids are uh, taking off, I just want to let you know what we're going to be doing the next couple of weeks. We are going to be going through an uh, Advent series called Carols. And the reason it's called Carols is because every week we're going to take a, a, a Christmas carol and we'll look at its theme or a couple lines from that carol that are related to that week's theme in Advent. So this week we're talking about hope and we're going to be looking at a few lines from the, the carol, O Holy Night. And so we'll do that every week as we go through the, the Christmas um, season preparing for Christmas Eve and the birth of Jesus Christ as we get ready to celebrate that. But before we get to uh, the passage this morning that's going to help us understand the, the significance behind hope and the significance behind this Christmas carol, I just want to tell a little bit of the history of this song, O Holy Night. O Holy Night was written in 1947. In 1947, there was a, a French Catholic priest who really wanted a poem written about Luke chapter 2. And so he went to one of the town's famous poets, a man named Placide Capot, a French guy. He was a merchant and a poet, and everybody knew Placide. But it wasn't for a good reason. You see, this guy uh, was not a church attender by any means. He was a little bit of a troublemaker. He had a reputation, and everybody knew it. But the he was the best poet in town, so the priest goes to him and he says, Placide, can you write a poem based on Luke chapter 2? And Placide says, yes, I'll write the poem. And when he finishes his poem, he's so pleased with the work that he then asks another friend, who's also not a believer in Jesus, he asks him, would you put this poem to music? And so his friend writes the music for O Holy Night. And on Christmas Eve in 1847, it's the first time that O Holy Night is sung. And it immediately becomes popular. Everyone falls in love with it. And it goes throughout not just the Catholic Church, but even other Christian traditions begin singing this song. At least for a few years. And then finally, someone looks down at the bottom and sees Placide Capot. And they realize, who's written this poem, this song? And there's a movement to try and stop people from singing it because these words weren't written by a devout, you know, Christian believer. It was written by some hooligan out there that's, that's causing trouble in our town. We can't be singing this song that he wrote, but it was too late. The song was already popular, and it remained popular as it is today. Then, in 1906, a man named Reginald Fessenden did what the entire world thought was impossible, using parts of of stuff that he had in his garage, he built a new type of generator. And on Christmas Eve in 1906, he took a microphone and plugged it into this generator. And for the first time in the history of of the world, the human voice was broadcast over AM radio. First words ever spoken over AM radio were Reginald's words. He picked up his Bible and he began... In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And he went on to read the Christmas story from Luke chapter 2. And when he finished, he closed his Bible. He reached down and he picked up his violin. And he began to play, O Holy Night. The very first song ever played on the radio was O Holy Night back in 1946. Now, the reason I want us to, to understand this background of O Holy Night is because there's a story that we're going to look at in Luke chapter 2 this morning. 
we're going to look at a story in Luke chapter 2 that I think is going to help us have a new perspective on the words of, of O Holy Night and the meaning of Christ's birth. So what I want us to do is if you would open your Bible to Luke chapter 2 beginning in verse 22. And what we find in Luke chapter 2 verse 22 is a story of, of Jesus as a little baby boy and, and his encounter with a man named Simeon and a woman named Anna. And this story takes place actually eight days after Jesus' birth. And according to the law of Moses, Mary and Joseph are going to take Jesus uh, into the temple and present him to be consecrated to the Lord. That means that he's going to be set apart. The law required that the firstborn son be set apart to the Lord. And it was at this time that Jesus was circumcised. And it was also at this time that Mary would have made an offering for her purification after childbirth. And verse 24 of chapter 2 gives us a little bit more insight into what Jesus' life was like as a little boy. Because the normal sacrifice that would have been offered would have been a lamb. But that's not what Mary and Joseph bring. If you look at, at verse 24, you see that Mary and Joseph bring two doves or, or two pigeons. This was still an acceptable sacrifice, but this was the sacrifice of a poor family. As if being born in a manger, being born in a barn, wasn't enough evidence that Jesus had humble beginnings. Now we have even more evidence of, of Jesus' humble life on this earth. And when Mary and Joseph enter the temple, they encounter a man named Simeon. Simeon comes up to them. Verse 25 tells us that Simeon was a righteous and devout man. Simeon had longed for the day that the Messiah would come. But there's another person that they encounter as well, and her name is Anna. Now, Anna is a widow who lived inside the temple. And there's a little bit of debate about exactly how old Anna was. Some, uh, it can be translated that she was 84 years old, or it could be that she had been a widow for 84 years, which would make her over 100 years old. Either way, Anna is an old widow. She lives there in the temple, and the text tells us that she worshipped there night and day praying and fasting. And so we have these two righteous, devout, and faithful people who are, are there worshiping God, waiting, hoping for the day that they might get to see God's promised Messiah. And Mary and Joseph walk in, and even though Jesus is the king of the world, remember, just like he didn't have some big announcement at his birth other than the angels, there were no trumpets, there was no castle, there was no crib. They walk in, carrying their baby and their two doves. Nobody else probably even noticed them, but Simeon sees them immediately. We read that Simeon had been moved by the Holy Spirit to go to the temple that day. And what's really cool is that because Simeon had longed so badly to see God's Savior, the Holy Spirit had revealed to him that he would not die until he got to see the Messiah. And finally that day comes. And he gets to see the Messiah. In 2004, Amanda and I were living just north of Boston. And when we moved there, I, I had no reason to root against Boston teams or the New England Patriots. I really didn't ever think about them that much until the fall of 2004. You see, earlier that year, the Patriots had won the Super Bowl. And now it was the fall of 2004, and the Red Sox were in the American League Championship Series. They were playing their, their rivals, right? The Yankees. 
Everybody hates the Yankees. You don't have to be a Red Sox fan to hate the Yankees. Everybody hates the Yankees. But the Red Sox really hate the Yankees. And so they're, they're playing the, the Yankees, and they're down three games to none in a best-of-seven series. And they do what no other team in the history of Major League Baseball has ever done before. Down three games to none, they come back and they win four games in a row against the New York Yankees, and they go on to the World Series, and then they win the World Series. Their fans became insufferable. It was miserable. If you were not a Red Sox fan, you couldn't go anywhere without hearing someone say, oh, the 2004 Sox, oh, the best team ever. They're the best. Nobody could ever beat the Red Sox. And that's all you heard for the rest of the year was about the Red Sox and, and how great they were, how they came back from three games to none. And that's all you heard about. If you went into a Dunkin' Donuts, you were sure, surely you were going to hear someone say, now I can die happy. The Red Sox have won a World Series. Hadn't been done in 88 years. Now I can die happy. Well, that's exactly how Simeon felt, except I would say Simeon had a legitimate reason to, to say, I can die happy, right? Look at what it says. And beginning in verse 28, Simeon took him, that's Jesus, in his arms, and he praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles for the glory of, of your people, Israel. And so Simeon is there and and he finally gets to see God's promised Messiah. And he says, God, you can take me home right now. I can die happy. I've seen the hope of the world, the hope of the nations, the hope of Israel. And then he prophesies about Jesus in verse 32, 34. It says, Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Simeon clearly understood that the Messiah that God had promised didn't just come to live among us, but he came to die for us. And so when he tells Mary that a, soul, that a sword will pierce your own soul, he's prophesying about the day that, that Jesus will be hung on the cross and Mary will be there to witness her son dying for the sins of the world. And as he's still speaking, Anna comes over. Anna sees what's happening. She knows that this is God's promised Messiah. And she comes over and look what happens in verse uh, 38. It says, coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So Anna comes over, she joins the scene, and she sees Jesus and Mary and Joseph and Simeon over there, and she looks over and she knows. In that moment, she knows that this is God's Messiah, God's one and only son that he sent. And she goes over and she blesses them and she she holds the baby boy, and then finally she's so excited that finally all hope that she had ever had, that praying and fasting that she'd done night and day, had been in anticipation of this moment that God's Messiah would come. And she goes out and she tells everyone else who's been waiting for this day. Now I know what you're probably thinking. All right. Chuck, this is uh, eight days after Jesus' birth, and you told us we're going to be looking at O Holy Night. This is eight days later. It doesn't take place on O Holy Night. Well, it doesn't, but 
I think when we look at Simeon and Anna's story, we're going to understand just how meaningful some of the lines of O Holy Night are. And let's look at those right now. The first line that I want us to look at is, Long lay the world in sin and error pining. In order to understand just how special this moment was for someone like Simeon and Anna to finally see God's Messiah, God's chosen one, the Savior, you have to understand how long people had been waiting. The very first promise of a Messiah, of a Savior, comes all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. This is just after the fall. So Adam and Eve are there living in the garden. God puts them in the garden and he gives them one command. He says, you can eat of any tree you want except for the tree in the center of of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But then the serpent comes along and he's crafty. And so he tricks them. He tempts them and he, he starts to twist God's word and he starts to get them to believe things that aren't true. And they choose to eat of the tree. And they disobey God and they sin. And then look what happens. God comes to them and because they sin, he pronounces um, kind of a punishment or a curse upon each of them. Adam's curse was that now the earth was going to increase his labor. He was going to have to work harder to get fruit and food from the earth. Eve's curse was that her pain was going to increase in childbirth. And then in the middle of this curse to the serpent, to Satan, we have this first promise of a Messiah. Verse 15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike at his heel. And so we have this promise in the middle of this curse that even though Satan is going to do everything he can to stop God's anointed one, God's son. God's son, the Messiah, is going to crush his head. He's going to be victorious. And that's important because his victory was not just over, over Satan, but over sin and death itself. And so you have, at the, at the most conservative estimate, you have 4,000 years from the time of Adam and Eve to the time of Jesus' birth. 4,000 years, 4,000 years of, of people longing and waiting and hoping for this moment. They're pining for this moment, living in their sin, waiting for that time when a Savior would be born who would take away their sin. And now Simeon and Anna get to be some of the first to witness that moment. Can you imagine what they felt? Can you, can you understand now why Simeon say, would say, now I can die Take me home, Jesus. I can go home now. I've seen it. This is it. But that's not all. Simeon and Anna understood that there was even more. The next line says this, Till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. You see, after Adam and Eve sinned, the world had a problem. All mankind had a problem. That problem was sin. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 tells us that sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. That's a problem, right? We all have sin. Sin caused separation between man and God. Just like your sin causes separation between you and God. But God was not content to leave us this way. Because God values your soul. John 3.16. The words are going to be up on the screen. I'd love for us to say it together. You ready? John 3.16. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. How much does God value your soul? What is the human soul, what is your soul worth to God? It was worth the life of his own son. You see, Simeon and Anna understood. Think back to Simeon's prophecy about the day that Jesus would die and Mary's own soul would be pierced. They understood that Jesus didn't come just to live among us. Jesus didn't come just to be a good example or to be a good teacher to us. No, Jesus came that he would die. And because he was the Son of God without sin, he was able to die in our place and take our punishment upon himself so that we could be forgiven. He was our substitute. And they understood this. And so for 4,000 years, they had been waiting for this time, and now it's here. And now Simeon and Anna finally get to see what God has promised. Now, there is a thrill of hope, and a weary world rejoices. If there are two words that can describe our world today, wouldn't you agree that it's a weary world? I mean, think about all the anxiety that we experience. The, the turmoil that's in the economy. Families are, are fighting within each other. Seems like every third person has some major illness or disease and relationships are being broken. We live in a weary world. But what I love about this is this, this reminds us This song reminds us that there's a thrill of hope. A thrill of hope. Imagine being Simeon and Anna. And like many before you for thousands of years, you've waited and you've longed and you've pined and you've hoped for that day that the Messiah would come. And finally, it's here. The anticipation has been building for God's anointed one, for the Messiah, for the Savior of the world who would come. And finally, he comes. This hope is is like a golden thread that weaves throughout the Old Testament as God's people are abused by power-hungry kings, as they're led astray by by self-centered prophets, and they're they're led into apathy by by half-hearted religious leaders. The people of God are just longing for the day that, that God will raise up a new king, someone who will teach them again what it means to be God's people. They're longing for this day, and and here it says that the day has come. And then the day comes, and from now on, everything's going to be different. From now on, there's, there's a thrill of hope. Suddenly, it's here. There's the thrill of hope, and the world does what? The world does what? The world rejoices. The world rejoices. Man, I, I pray that if you're living in a weary world, whatever it is, that, that you through faith, would be able to rejoice, that you would experience the thrill of hope. Why? Why is it that you're able to experience that thrill of hope? Because even though there's the chaos of the night, a new morning is breaking. Even though we're, we're still living in a weary world, even with that thrill of hope, there's that chaos that comes in the middle of the night when we're surrounded by darkness but yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. When I think about the lines for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn, I think about uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy and, and two, two Towers. Do you guys remember that movie? And there's one point in the movie where 
Aragon and, and Gandalf are, are uh, about to have this great battle. They're at Helm's Deep, which is this fortress that's built into the side of the mountain. And Gandalf, a couple days before the battle, he takes off. He says, he says look, I'm going to get reinforcements. I'm going to go get the, the horsemen and bring back reinforcements. And before he leaves, he tells Aragon this. He says, at the fifth day, look for my coming at first light. On dawn, look to the east. And he takes off. Gandalf leaves. And Aragon and his men are left there preparing for the battle. And then the battle comes. The orcs. The orcs are this evil race that have been bred simply to exterminate human beings. Right? I, I would have loved to show the clip. I wish I could have. But, you know, it's, it's got orcs getting their faces slashed open by swords. And nothing says, happy birthday, Jesus, like a bunch of orcs getting their face slashed open. So I'm going to try to set the scene. They're surrounded by orcs. This is the darkness coming to overtake the fortress. And they're in the middle of the battle. They're facing losses. They're facing setbacks. And a small group of men are left. And they're inside this fortress that's built into this, the mountain. Their, their backs are literally against the wall. They're, they're between an orc and a hard place. And, and they're there. I'm glad you caught that. All right. So they're between an orc and a hard place. And they decide this is it. This is our last chance. The orcs are breaking down the door. We're just going to charge out and give it everything we got. We're going to take a few down with us. But then the light begins to break over the horizon. And Gandalf and the reinforcements arrive. And, and, and as they come down the hill, the light breaks. And Gandalf leads the charge. And they force the orcs back into the forest, back into the darkness. They push out the darkness, and the light overtakes the darkness. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Because that's exactly what happened when Jesus was born. Except there was no wizard to come and save the day. It was the Son of God taking the form of a servant. His battle was not against earthly enemies. He didn't fight with sword and axe. No, he, he fought against our spiritual enemies, sin and death, and gave us victory. Jesus, through his death, gives us victory. He brings the light into our life. And so we can, we can have the hope that comes with a new day. When all seems lost, we can remember the fact that Jesus triumphed over our enemy, over sin and death, and that there is a new and glorious morn. I want us to look at one more passage. Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, beginning in verses 11 and 12. It says this, The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Imagine being a new, an Old Testament believer looking forward in hope to the birth of the Messiah, the Savior. And being Simeon and Anna and Jesus comes. And now that hope is fulfilled. And there is a new and glorious morn. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. That same hope, Jesus brings the hope of a new day for all who will place their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Now there's, there's something I, I want you to do. I want you to think back to the story of how O Holy Night was written. Do you remember who wrote it? Maybe not his name, 
But I want you to remember that the man who wrote it wasn't even a believer in Jesus Christ. So what does that tell you? That tells you that it's possible to know the story of Christmas, but not know the Savior. If you leave here this morning and take away one thing, I I pray that it would be this, that that you would come to place your faith in Jesus as your Savior. Because you may still be living in the chaos and the darkness of night. Your world may still be weary because you're carrying around the burden of your own sin. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. You can have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Let today be the day that your soul feels its worth. Let today be the day that your weary world turns to a world of rejoicing. Let today be the day that you say, I'm trusting in Jesus Christ alone as my Savior. And I now have that thrill of hope. And my world is a world of rejoicing. You may be here, and, and that may be something that happened to you a long time ago. You've already done that. You've already trusted Christ. And if, that, if that's you, I just want to remind you of these verses that as you look at it, it's really looking forward to a new day that comes when Christ returns. So for all who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, we have the hope of a new day for when Christ returns. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Isn't that good news? Man, even as believers, we can, we can be in the middle of a weary world. You may be facing financial hardships. You may be facing cutbacks at work. Uh, I don't know what else you may be facing. Your world still may feel very weary. But I want you to, to know that you have the hope of Jesus Christ. That the night is nearly over. The day is almost here. That's the hope of Christmas that we have. Not just the hope of a new life in Jesus Christ for now, but we have the hope of eternal life in heaven with God forever. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. What is your new and glorious morning that you need to experience today? What is that thrill of hope that you need to ask God to bring into your life? Will you pray with me? Father, Lord, we come to you now and and we do ask that you would bring to each and every one of us a thrill of hope. That you would turn our weary world into a world of rejoicing. Lord, that we could experience new life in you as we look forward in hope to eternal life with Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would Allow our hearts and our minds to be focused and set on you this Christmas season as as we prepare to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. And not just his birth, but his death and resurrection so that our sins can be forgiven. We ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.